Amen. It's working again now. <laughs> that little red light goes on and off. It makes me nervous when I get up here because it means you can't hear me. <laughs> All right. So good to see you this morning, church. So thankful to be here with you and uh, in this place again, worshiping the Lord. It is, uh, it is always a good day when we get to come to church and worship together. Amen? Amen. Um, as we get going today, I just want to invite you to uh, open up your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5. And I want to turn our attention to verses uh, 1 through 13 today as we continue on in our series through the book of Nehemiah. And the title up there on the screen we said is The Fear of the Lord for the Love of Our Brother. And we entitled this today because I think we're going to see a bit of a, a shift in, uh, in the book of Nehemiah, right? It's not, a, it's not a full-fledged shift. The wall's not completed yet, but this feels like the seeds for a turning point in the book of Nehemiah and what we're, what we're seeing out of the people, what we're seeing God do with the people is beginning to take shape uh, in these first 13 verses here. Because we said when we started going through the book of Nehemiah that the story of Nehemiah, yes, it is a story about them building a wall around Jerusalem, right? That is true. That, is hap- that actually happened. But it's a story that's about more than just building a wall. It's a story uh, greater than just reestablishing this perimeter around Jerusalem. And I think the beginnings of that shift of what we see God doing in the hearts of the people is, uh, is starting to take shape here in this text that we turn our attention to here today. <clears throat> so with that, I hope you've got your Bibles open to Nehemiah 5. Uh, you know what? I just forgot something I was supposed to announce to you too. With all the rain and snow, we've had some water kind of seeping into some spots of the building. So if you're a mom with a little one that's used to using the mom's room uh, downstairs, we had to close that off to get it dried out today. So I just want to let you know, too, the nursery, though, is open, and there's a, a TV with the service that can live stream on that as well, too. So if you've got to escape with a baby today, um, you know, we love the, the choir of baby cries in there. It doesn't bother me. So if it doesn't bother me, it shouldn't bother any of you, okay? But if you need to escape with your baby... Um, just head downstairs like you normally to the mom's room, but just keep going straight all the way to the other building, and the nursery is right there under the early childhood sign, and you can use that there too. So just wanted to put that in there in case someone had to escape. Just don't use that mom's room today because it's still, still kind of damp. So the joys of having an old building, right, church? Amen? Amen. All right, back to Nehemiah chapter 5. Starting in verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money uh, for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be as slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help them, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers so that they might be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. 
Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations and our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. This is the word of the Lord, church. As we get started for us today, I just want to share a picture for us here. Curious, how many of you have ever dealt with a, with a situation quite like that? Where you've got uh, kids inside your homes or people you're watching or, or something going on, right? Siblings that were having a breakup who are having some kind of issue, uh, some kind of disagreement, some kind of fight. I'm sure if you're a parent, you've done that. If you're an aunt or an uncle and you've babysat, you've probably been here and you've seen that face, right? What do, what do we tell our parent or what do we tell our kids as, as Christian parents, right? Or or uh, or aunts or uncles who who want to point our, our nieces and nephews to the Lord? What do we tell them, right? We often point them in this kind of situation to what? To that golden rule, right? From Matthew chapter seven. This golden rule, the, the phrase that's famous, that even, even people who are not in the church know it, right? That says, you want to treat others how you want to be treated. And the way the ESV says it, I have it up on the screen for us. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Right? We get the kids that are sitting there uh, uh, banging heads and angry at each other and fighting against each other and, and doing things to hurt one another, and we always point them back to this golden rule, right? Do unto others what they would ha- or what you would want them to do to you. It's interesting, too, there's a second part of that verse that we see where Jesus says, for this is the law and the prophets. See, Jesus has given us another place here as he summarizes the law like he does in other parts of the Gospels. When he says to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we're seeing in Matthew chapter 7 there. And this is where we often go with our kids when we see those faces that were in the picture we just had up on screen that we all kind of chuckled at as we saw it. Because we want to teach our kids the way in which we live, to, or the way in which we live together that will glorify God. And we want, to de- we want to teach our kids, right? We want to teach them to demonstrate care and concern and a love for one another and their well-being. Right? And that's why when you, you see that face and you see that strife and you see that tension at home, what do we always point them back to? Treat others the way you want to be treated. And not as what we so often want to do as people when we look to take advantage of a situation in order to get something better for ourselves out of it. That's right? so why I tell uh, Timothy, I tell him all the time, I said, don't go trading and, and things with your sister, right? Because there's always that one-upsmanship. Like, Katie, will you trade uh, this um, thing with me for that thing that you've got? And then there's that talking into it, right? Like, oh, hey, you've got the, you've got the uh, um, what am I thinking? You've got you know, the, uh, the Fig Newton for dessert, right? We don't eat Fig Newtons, but here's an example. I'll trade you two Fig Newtons for that one bowl of ice cream, right? 
How we take advantage of situations, even in silly situations with brothers and sisters. But it's a part of our human nature. It's a part of our human nature that has to be dealt with by the Lord. It's a part of our human nature that has to be dealt with, ultimately, with the gospel at work in our lives. And this is where we find the Jews who are working to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem in the text today. Last week, we finished up chapter 4, where we saw the external threats to the Jews and the impact that they had on the work of building the wall and the impact they had on creating fear and creating discouragement in the lives of the people. The people were, were ready to give up and walk away, right? Because they were failing to remember it was the Lord who was great and awesome that called them to this work. Those threats were coming from the outside. Those threats were coming from the outside. This week, there is another threat to the completion of the work God has commissioned to building the wall. And this threat comes from the people of God who are undertaking the work of God, not acting like the people of God. Love for one another is a hallmark of God's people. We see it in the New Testament. It's, it's explicitly spelled out for us. Jesus in the Gospel of John, in, in chapter 13, verse 35, he says, By this, all people will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This command from the Lord, this instruction of how we are to live as members of God's kingdom, though, it's not just something Jesus made up and gave his disciples as a, as a new piece of information, right? No. Uh, think about what Jesus says before, the other famous words of Jesus. He says to do what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? That's not just something Jesus made up in that moment, right? Jesus didn't just come up with that. And now we get that differentiation between the mean God from the Old Testament and the nice God, Jesus, from the New Testament. No, if we go back to Leviticus chapter 19, we will see a series of commands and laws that God gives in rapid succession to the people. And in verse 18, we read the command from the Lord of this in Leviticus, right? It says, do not seek revenge or bury grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is what God intended for his people, or how he intended his people to be living. This is how God intended for us to be treating one another from the very beginning. God is not, is not two schizophrenic beings, uh, an angry one in the Old Testament and a nice one in the New Testament. No, this is who he is. This is who he has called his people to be for all of history. Nehemiah chapter 5, as the people of God undertake the work of God, they are failing to act like the people of God toward one another. And this is troubling for multiple reasons that we're about to dig into, but it's troubling because what is being rebuilt, right? What is intended to be rebuilt, they think it's just supposed to be this wall around the city, to rebuild this city that is so important to the Jews, that are so important to the people of the promise of Israel. This wall being built so the people can reside again in the city that is central to the governance of Israel, but is also the central place of worship of Yahweh. This is an important city. And so they see this work as something that they're just doing to rebuild this city to press on and see the promises of God fulfilled in their life. But there's something else that's supposed to be going on in the lives of the people and in the hearts of the people as well here. This is supposed to be the, re re the beginning of the rebuilding of the kingdom of God. This is supposed to be the return of the exiles. We saw those prophecies early on, right? The prophets who go to Israel before they are sent off into exile 
also leave little traces of hope saying, God will restore you to this land. He will bring you back to this place. Your ancestors, your fathers, you have failed and I am scattering you amongst the nations, but the exiles will return and Israel will be that blessing to the nations that God had promised they would be all the way back at the beginning with the line of Abraham. They're supposed to be rebuilding the kingdom of God, not just the wall. And even in these stages of rebuilding the wall, we see people repeating mistakes of the past that had caused them to be scattered amongst the nations, amongst these pagan nations that God had used to bring judgment on the wickedness that Israel turned to. These things that they're starting to do are some of the very things, the very injustices, the very things they were doing that caused God to say, you have failed and I'm going to wipe you out of the land. But not forever. You're going to return. You'll be back. And even as they're supposed to be turning their hearts toward the Lord, building this city, uh, building the wall around the city that needs to be rebuilt, there's actually a wall around the hearts of the people that needs to be torn down. We see in chapter 5 that there is something missing from the Jews here. And if we look for that uh, main idea of the passage... Right? That's what we always kind of start out. We're always looking for what the heart, what the main idea of the passage we're looking at is going to be. I think I would look to verse 9 where Nehemiah says, Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? The fear of the Lord, we're told in many places in Scripture, is the beginning of knowledge. And I think this passage we see, uh, we see today is that the fear of the Lord, it's, not, it's the beginning of knowledge, but God uses that fear... Right, That respect, that love, that fear of his power coming down upon sin. He uses that fear to drive us to love our brother and our neighbor. That's why Nehemiah looks at the people and tells them in verse 9, Ought we not to fear the Lord? The Lord has commanded us to not act like this. And so this is a, a great use of the law. This is a beautiful use of God's word is that the fear of the Lord drives us to love our brother and our neighbor. We want to head in, or we want to heed the lessons from this narrative today, church. We want to really embrace that today, and this is the, the why, right, what we're looking to be transformed by and kind of apply in our own life, so that we, right, would be honest and fair and just in how we deal with people around us for their well-being and for the glory of God. Because that is who God has called us to be in Christ. This is his word. This is his command. This is what we're to follow. And we do that today, not because we're trying to make ourselves right before God, but because we want to follow Jesus and how we live. Does that make sense, church? We want to follow Jesus with how we live. And so we've got to be careful here, too, just a little warning as we dig into this, to not get too legalistic as we dig in here. Because there's some historical things we need to look at as we see how the Jews are acting towards one another. But we need to keep Christ in focus because all of this, all of what they're doing, uh, all of the things that people are doing right now is they're failing to live the way God has called them to, um, to live like the way God has called them to, right? This is about demonstrating those attributes of God in their lives towards one another. And one of those things is that love for their brother and for their neighbor. 
So we look to God's word today, and we remember that the fear of the Lord works to drive love for our brother and for our neighbor, and we want to embrace that because we want to live like Christ. And living like Christ means that we're going to be honest, and we're going to be fair, and we're going to be just in how we're dealing with the people around us. And when we do that, church, here's the beautiful thing. When we do that, we bring glory to God by living that way. Because like it says in, uh, in I think it's 1 Peter, let them see your good works so that they may glorify God on the day of visitation. We are to be living like Christ so that our good works are seen among the nations so that people would see how good our God is. Not how good we are, right? Not, not how, how righteous we are, but they can see how good our God is that they would take a wretch like me, that he would take a wretch like me and make something of it to where before where I was selfish and antagonistic and looking out for, for number one, right? All of a sudden there's a heart and a mind in me that has come and been bestowed upon uh, me from the power of the Holy Spirit that says, what are the needs of others here? I'm not saying I do that perfectly. I'm sure all of you will probably see me fail and stumble, just like you all will see each other fail and stumble. But that is not something that was natural to me before the Lord worked in my life. That's something that we, we want to see uh, in the importance of that right now in the people of, uh, of Israel in chapter 5. So let's look back at chapter 5 now. Let's look back at chapter 5 now and let's see where this thing starts to go off the rails. The situation here in Jerusalem, and out of this uh, situation, or out of the situation, there are three complaints, and really there's three petitions uh, from of help from the people, and I've got those three things listed up there for us. First, in verse one, we see these uh, this outcry. It says, "Now arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against Jewish brothers." And this is the setup for us. Something is going on amongst the Jews that is causing the people uh, distress, and it's causing them to cry out. This is language that we see throughout the New Testament when the people are in trouble and they're crying out to the Lord because they they need His help. They need His deliverance. They need the Lord to work in such a way that He changes their circumstances. Because something is going on here now that shouldn't be. And it's bringing suffering to these people. So they cry out. And this cry is against their brothers. It's against the very people that they're, they're taking up this work of rebuilding the wall with. And we see why they cry out in verses 2 through 5. In verse 2, and this is point 1 that's on the screen, we have the report that there is a group of people who are looking for food. There are people who have turned uh, to this work of building the wall, and now their families are going hungry. In verse 3, we see the plight of this second group of people. These are landowners who are having to mortgage their fields and their vineyards. These lands, that they used, uh, these lands that they used to feed their families and produce crops uh, for their families and probably for their neighbors and for the community as well. Apparently, we find out that uh, the, um, in, <laughs> sorry. in this area, we find out that they are having to actually mortgage their lands off, right? And there's a, there's a situation that's exacerbating both of these situations. There's poor people who have nothing, that can't find food, and there's people that have land, and they have some measure of wealth, and they're supposed to be producing food, but they're not because there is, as we find out, a famine in the land as well. So two good things that go together, right? You're dedicating your life to working on this wall, and and then on top of that, now there's a struggle to find food. I think right off the bat, we can see the way that this would inhibit, would inhibit the work of the people as they try to pursue what God has called them to, right? 
we probably all know, if we see our family going hungry as we're pursuing certain things and pursuing certain tasks, we're probably going to start to question whether or not we're going down the right path, aren't we? If we're sitting there and we're looking at it and we're saying, like, God, we really think that this is what you've called us to do, but we're looking around and, and our kids are like, Dad, there's no food in the cabinet. What are we going to do? That's going to make you rethink, like, well, maybe this wasn't the right path after all, was it? And so you can see how, how these, uh, this situation with some people who are too poor, they can't find food, other people that are having to uh, mortgage off their lands because they can't afford uh, to, to buy food, so they're trying to get money to actually buy it from people who do have it. And it's causing doubt. It's, it's causing them to cry out because it's like, God, we, we want to pursue building this wall, but we, we need to eat. We need to eat. There's a third group now that cries out also, and this is point three that's on there. The third group cries out because they have to borrow money for the king's tax. And this burden is so great, and they are struggling to pay that, that they are now even being taken as slaves, and their children are being taken as slaves and as servants in order to repay this debt. And now they're in a spot. It says that they can't even get out of the cycle, because as the end of verse 5 says, they, the only way they could do this is to use their fields and their vineyards, but other men have already taken their land, so that they have no way to even get the money they need in order to set things right, in order to redeem their relatives, in order to buy them back out of the bondage that they've had to be in. This is a bad situation. This is a bad situation. When you get to the point, too, and granted, we live in a very different culture, so that doesn't happen, but you get to a point where you're so desperate, you're saying, in order to pay off our debts, we're going to have to uh, sell uh, Timothy off into bondage. You're going to have to go cut grass for Leslie's son so we can pay off our debts, right? You're in a rough spot. And this is way worse than that, right? This is way worse than that, than the silly example I just gave. There are taxes that have to be paid to the Persians, which are known to be a heavy burden. But now with their time and efforts and energy and resources going to the work, the people are going to these extreme lengths to get the money they need, like selling their children as bond servants. And not here's the other amazing thing about this too. This is not happening to other nations, right? They're not selling them off and saying goodbye forever. They're selling them to their brothers in Jerusalem. They're selling them to fellow Jews in order to take care of their debts. And the people here now are in great need, and their response is to cry out because of the treatment with which their own brothers are treating them. And it's exacting a heavy burden on the people. And this failure to treat one another the way God has called them to treat one another is threatening to stop the work now because the people are in a place that they won't survive if they try to see it through. And if they do survive, if they do make it through with how they're treating one another, I would imagine they're wondering what would be so great about getting the wall rebuilt anyway. If this is what life is like, if this is how we treat one another, if this is what we're supposed to be as the people of God, who cares if the wall is truly ever rebuilt? It's not worth it. Life's probably better off in Persia. People come with three complaints. There's a heavy burden. The poor among the Jews are being mistreated. That leaves us with a question, though, church. Right? We have a fundamental understanding because most of us have been in the church. Most of us have been in the West. So 
There's some measure that we've been influenced by the Christian faith to say we should care for the poor. But here's my question for us too. Why is this a problem? I think the scripture gives us a reason why it's a problem, but the world around us says um, doesn't have a reason for it. And this is one thing I want to highlight for us here too. The poor among the Jews are being mistreated. We know that. We see that. But why is this a problem? If we look at our, our Bibles, and if you're using an ESV translation, there's a, a heading at the top of chapter 5 that says, Nehemiah stops the oppression of the poor. And I definitely think we see that here, right? I think we see some uh, oppressive things happening. We see some things where people are being taken advantage of and not treated, being treated fairly and justly. But I think there's something deeper going on here, which is why I don't think that that heading is the most helpful heading to set our uh, framework for how we understand this text. We see something deeper going on, which is what we see Nehemiah rectify in verses 7 through 9. See, Nehemiah 6, uh, he says he hears the cries of the people, and Nehemiah is angry. And he rightfully should be angry. We can all look at these events, and we know something is very wrong here. People who are vulnerable and who are in need of help are instead being taken advantage of. And this is bad in and of itself. And it is not how people living as a citizen of the kingdom of God should conduct themselves in this world. But I want to remind us here that this problem is not one that is being brought upon the people by the outside world. This is the Jews doing this to other Jews. This is the people of God doing this to the people of God. And this is something that God has given strict rules against in his covenant with Israel. So why is this a problem? This is a problem because God has already spoken to this issue to these people's ancestors. God has already spoken to this. So on the screen it says, God in his law gives people instruction for how they should care for their neighbor and their brother. We can look back at Exodus chapter 22, and I just have it here. You don't have to flip back with me and find it in the beginning of the Bible, but you can, you can go back and look at this. But Exodus chapter 22 and verse 25, this is Moses giving law to the people. It says, if you lend money to any of my people with who, with who you is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. This is God laying out the law for the people of Israel in, in Exodus chapter 22. Right? And we see the Lord is clear with Israel in the law. The people of Israel are not to be charging interest from their brothers in Israel. God gave this law to the people in order to guard them against the hardness of heart toward their brothers in need. So that they would be there to help care for one another. And through this care, demonstrate the love that the Lord has shown for them and the love that He still has for them. And He says... We see that. We see that love in that final, that final verse in 27. What does God say? If he cries to me, I will hear him, for I am compassionate. God hears the cries of people who are being taken advantage of, who are being treated unjustly. Deuteronomy 15, another example of this, right? Another example of God's law in the Old Testament, where we see God giving instruction to Israel regarding how they should treat one another. You read uh, verse, starting in verse 7. 
It says, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land and that the Lord your, that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient in his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest that there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, the seventh year of release is near and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to, the, to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. This is instruction in God's law to the people of Israel as they are getting ready to take possession of the land. Right? This is, this is them, uh, God telling them, a key piece of obedience to me is loving your brother and the way in which you love and care for one another. So much so that God even says in the middle of that too, that if you don't do these things, you, you very well might be guilty of sin. This is a harsh uh, condemnation of abandoning your brother in his time of need. And there's an interesting piece in there too that we, we didn't really talk about the context, but it says the seventh year of release is near. This seventh year of release is this jubilee year that God decreed where debts would be forgiven in year six. So if you have a debt and you're paying it off, paying it off, paying it off, in year seven, it is released and this jubilee year happens and people are set free from their debt, right? They're no longer captives. If you were a slave or a bond servant, you would be released from that. And so God's, God's telling them, because God knows that we like to play loopholes in our own heart, right? He says, yeah, if you want to do this right, but then you're like, well, it's year six, so if I give them something, year seven's only a couple of months away, I won't get it back, right? So God's already answering the loopholes as we're trying to, to answer that in our own heart. And he's saying, no, give freely to your brother. Show that love and that care and that compassion for your brother. This is the law of God. Paul tells us that in Romans uh, chapter 13 at the end of it. He said, love does no wrong to one another. Thus love is the fulfilling of the law. This is the beautiful thing about God's law, church. It's the beautiful thing is that it's supposed to be a safeguard for us to cause us to love one another the way God calls us to. We find in God's law for Israel these commands that they are to demonstrate love for one another in such a way that they freely care for one another when they see a brother who is poor and in need. I think this is so important for us, church, because it is God's law that gives us the reason to care for our brother. Right? This is kind of a controversial thing to say in the, the day and age that we live in because it, it brings criticism, especially from our atheist critics, that say, oh, what a horrible morality that you only do good things because God told you to do it and you're just afraid of God uh, punishing you. That's not, that's not good morals. That's, just, that's behaviorism. That's just doing something for a reward at the end of the day. But church, it's the exact opposite. It is the exact opposite. I've got that second piece under there too. This gives us reason for loving our neighbor. If we're going to truly love our neighbor and we're going to truly embrace that mindset, we have to have some kind of foundation to stand on that says uh, your well-being is a good thing that should be pursued, right? And a, a, a moralistic, 
um, or no, sorry, a, a materialistic, a materialistic perspective that just says we're just sort of stardust. You know, we're we're basically effectively you shook up a Dr Pepper bottle and fizzed out, right? That's a a, a popular uh, example that right. Our brain is just a chemical reaction, and so if our brain is just chemical reactions and our neurons are firing, what difference between us is there and a bottle of Dr Pepper that I shook up and caused the chemical reaction in to fizz out? What's the difference? The difference is we're not just a bottle of pop. We're not just chemical reactions. We're not just stardust. We're not just matter in motion, any of these things that people like to say or the phrases they like to use. No, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And God has said there is a way in which we should treat one another. He has given us an objective moral standard that we can look to that affirms the value and worth of each of us as individuals. And along those lines, he's given us that objective moral standard that says it's good to care for your brother when they are in need of your help. God's law, amazing church, amazing. God's law gives us the reason for loving our neighbor. It is the objective moral standard we get to look to that we get to answer those criticisms, right, of atheists that look at us and criticize our faith that say, you're just scared of your sky daddy. That's why you're doing nice things. No, I can't do nice things unless he tells me what a nice thing is. And he's revealed that to us, church. He's revealed that to us. The people in Nehemiah's day should have been looking to God's law to direct them and guide them, and they weren't. And we today get to look to God's law to tell us how do we live like Christ? How do we follow and obey Christ? How do we love our neighbor like we love ourselves the way Christ has called us to? This is the law of God that the people in Jerusalem should have in their minds and on their hearts because they are not just rebuilding the wall to say, look, we've rebuilt the city. No, they have come to this place at this time to restore the kingdom that had been scattered because hundreds of years earlier um, because of their disobedience. No, these people are here to once again be Yahweh's uh, people of covenant promise, to be these people who are blessed by God in order to be the blessing to the nations God has called them to be. That's what they should have on their mind. Right? Not how do I take advantage of this situation. And the physical work of the rebuilding the wall is threatened now, not from outside enemies, but by the people's lack of fear of the Lord as they fail to understand and they fail to live according to the covenant promises with their Lord. We may see a, see, a zeal in the people to see the city res, res, restored and the wall of protection be rebuilt, but now what is needed is a zeal for something that is more than a wall. What is needed now is for the people to once again turn to the Lord, not like they did in chapter 4 for deliverance from their enemies, but for the people to turn to the Lord as their Lord, as their King as the one they submit to, as the one they bend the knee to, as the one they live to conform their lives to. Because missing amongst the people here is the proper fear of the Lord and a desire to live according to His ways and the fruit that grows out of this desire to follow Him. That's what's missing here in Jerusalem. They have shovels, they have trowels, they're short on food, and the shortage of food is showing them what it is they actually serve in this life and who it is they actually care about bringing glory to. This is why Nehemiah looks at the nobles and the officials 
And he calls them out for these wicked things which they are doing to the people. And he says in verse 9, he says in verse 9, Ought you not to walk in the fear of God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Ought you not walk in the fear of our God? Whose God is this? Whose God does Nehemiah says this is? He doesn't say, ought you not fear? Or ought you not walk in the fear of my God? Ought you not walk in the fear of Israel's God? Ought you not walk in the fear of so-and-so's God? Ought you not walk in fear of our God? These people are supposed to have a testimony of faith. These people are supposed to be people of the promise. And Nehemiah is calling them to remember that he is their God. And this is so important. Church, you see these moments in the scripture. Take notice of those things of whose God is whose when you see somebody make that claim. Because it gives a big indication of who it is they're actually serving, who it is they're actually living for. Whose God is this? Our God. It is our God we confess and we live for. Where is the fear of him then? That Nehemiah, the nobles and the officials who so brazenly hurt their brothers and disregard the way God says they should treat one another. Where is the fear of him? If he is their God, where is the fear of him? This failure has implications too. This failure has implications because when the people fail to walk in the fear of God, the enemies of God, it says, are emboldened by their lack of care for one another. And the taunts come out. And the people mock, yes, but ultimately, it's the mockery of the people that's not the, the root issue. In that mockery, uh, it is the defamation of the God of the people of Israel. This is where the people look at Israel and they say, huh, some God they have, look at how they treat each other. Why in the world would I want to turn to that God if that's how those people act and that's how those people live? They're no different from us. There's a bunch of self-righteous jerks. When people fail to live like that, when they fail to walk in the fear of the Lord, they fail to live like the God who's called them to be His people. It opens the door to His fame being robbed from Him. It opens the door for people to freely sit there and look and say, I'm not going there. I'm not doing that. People are just like us. They're worse than us. There's a lesson for us here, uh, church. See, Jesus taught us the same thing in John 13 we read earlier, didn't he? When he said, they'll know you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. Why would anyone who is an unbeliever want to join us in worshiping our great and awesome God if all they see from us is a people who squabble and badmouth each other? If all they see of us is a people who take advantage of one another when the time is right. What kind of God are we telling the world that we serve if that was how we treated one another? That's a sad, the, sad, the sad truth of that is there are many, many churches that have fallen in our world today because of that very thing. Because of that very thing. And, and even worse, we see it uh, when we see abuse in the church. It's beyond awful when we see that, isn't it, church? When we hear those stories, because the very men or the very leaders who are supposed to be caring for people and seeing them raised up and seeing them, uh, um, seeing them uh, 
raised out of their hopeless condition, these people are taking advantage of vulnerable people for their own desire and their own gain. And it leaves their victims crushed in life. It leaves their victims wondering, who is this God that I was supposed to be uh, looking to anyway? It shakes their faith. But then today when, or today, when the people of God grossly fail in living like the people of God, it opens the doors to the taunts of the enemy. And this isn't just, okay, we're going to get made fun of, you know, okay, we're having to deal with a scandal. No, church, this is about us showing the world exactly who our great and awesome God truly is. So for us, what we do, or how we live with our family, how we live with our neighbors, how we live with our coworkers, how we live with our community, it tells them who our God is. Does that mean, yes, when there is a problem in the church that's disrupting it, we have to deal with it. If there's abuse inside the church, it must be dealt with and it must be dealt with harshly. Because, number one, it's the right thing to do according to God's law. And number two, because the way in which we deal with those things tells the world something about God's character. We want to show them how good and great and awesome our God is. The way we live, church, with our families and our neighbors, our coworkers, our community, it tells them, it tells the world something about who our God is. The people in Nehemiah's time had to deal with this, right? Nehemiah convened with the nobles and the officials in verses 7 through 9 because, one, he's angry about the mistreatment of his people. That's a good, righteous anger, right? When you see the people in this situation, it's good to say, you know what, something's wrong, this has got to get fixed. But the second thing he calls them to do, he calls them to glorify God and how they treat one another. Return to that fear of the Lord so that we would glorify God in the way we're living together, the way we're caring for one another, the way we're treating one another. From this meeting that Nehemiah convenes uh, in verses 7 and 9, we see uh, come out of that very specific instruction on how to rectify these issues. And how to bring peace between the brothers, both rich and poor, as they work toward the one common goal of seeing the wall rebuilt and their city and their place of worship restored. The solution Nehemiah gives is to give it all back. Stop practicing this lending with interest. Stop taking your neighbor's kids as servants and as slaves to pay off their debts, give it all back. Stop what you're doing. Make this right. Live how God has called you to treat one another. Israel, Jews, rebuilding the wall, give it all back. That's a hard thing to hear. We have to be careful, too, because given some of the social strife we face in our country today, this would be a really easy passage to take out of context and to start using to advocate for <clears throat> some more of the extreme sort of social justice positions that are popular, right? And with that, I want to say that sometimes things like reparations are actually called for. We see that in Nehemiah's day. You see the people with uh, what they've taken from others, and Nehemiah's call is to give it back. Make it right. Care for your brother. Don't rob from them. Build them up. 
And in this case, with Nehemiah, the people who were doing the wrong had the people who had been wronged right there with them. And I don't think there's a clear translation to our current context and the social justice initiatives that are being pushed to the forefront of our social and political conversations today. Why? Because, again, the people in Nehemiah are here with the people they wronged. Right? And so we've got to be careful in how we, how we try to apply that to today. And this is why I don't find the ESV's heading in chapter 5 all that helpful. Because if we take the heading and we go to this text with that kind of framework in mind, we could potentially use this text to say all kinds of things that I don't think uh, it is intended to say. Because what is really at the heart of this text is not a lesson in reparations. It is about whether or not the fear of the Lord is present in the lives of the people of God and how that fear of the Lord and that desire to glorify and obey Him shows up in how we love our brother. So that we are glorifying God by dealing with people honestly, fairly, justly, not taking advantage of people, right? When we sh- what we should be doing is loving them and desiring to see good for them. And this is again too why some of these conversations we have about social justice, right? And, and things like this are, are, are hard in our culture because there are words in the scripture that we have to say, the people who are pushing some of these uh, ungodly sort of social justice narratives are using biblical language in a lot of times, right? Justice, equity, uh, equal scales, right? Not taking advantage, oppression. These are things that God tells us to be aware of and to deal with when they are present in our midst. But we have to make sure we use the right judgment of God and keep the fear of God at the heart of what we're doing as we look at those things. right? Because we want to actually deal with the root causes of these issues. And we want to make sure that what comes out of that is a genuine love and care for our brother. Not, not for an alternate gospel. right? And that's where a lot of the social justice initiatives go to. Is it's presenting an alternate way of salvation. Right? It's saying in order to be saved, you have to give up what you have to give to people who don't. And it's confusing the whole issue that we're facing today by trying to take texts like this and force it into our context. That's not the case. What we're looking for here is not just a prescription to fix all of our social ills. All of our social ills. We're looking to see, do we have the fear of God working and active in our lives? Because if we do, if we do... We'll have that care and concern for our brother and for his well-being. And ultimately, in the long run, that is the prescription. That is the fix for some of the things that get pushed with social justice, the social justice narratives in our culture. The thing that fixes that is the fear of God. It is repentance and faith and turning to Christ. That is the fix. That is the fix. The work of the wall is threatened from the inside because the people of God lacked the fear of God and the relationships they had with one another didn't see the care and concern of a God-glorifying community present so that they could lock arms together and give everything they had together to pursue Yahweh and the building of His kingdom. And what's amazing, right? This is what they're lacking. And what's amazing in this moment in verse 10, when Nehemiah looks at them and says, here's how we're going to fix this. You're going to give it all back, and we're going to stop this practice, this unjust practice that God's law tells us not to do. And in this moment in chapter 10, or verse 10 to 13, the people do what Nehemiah says to do. They seek to make the situation right. I'm, just, I'm sorry, can you imagine like a group of people? These are, these are wealthy people. It says these are nobles and officials, right? These are people who are in higher places. 
I mean, think about the way our government works. Our government can't show up and like write a budget, you know, for 20, the last 20 years. You've just had this council of people Nehemiah's brought together, and he said, this is how we fix it. And what do they say? Amen. Wow. I mean, if that is not God at work in the lives of people to change their hearts and their minds to see where they are wrong in order to rectify a problem that they've caused, I don't know what is, right? Try getting a group of people in your room to fix something like that and to get every one of them in agreement to say, yes, we will. That, that is God at work, church. That is God at work here. That is God at work as they seek to make the situation right. God is at work turning the hearts of the people now in Jerusalem back to himself. I mentioned earlier as we began uh, the sermon today, as we began the sermon today, that um, I think what we're seeing here in the book of Nehemiah in chapter 5 is the seed, the seed of what God is actually doing in the story of the Jews in Nehemiah. What God is actually doing with this group in Jerusalem right now. Because here in chapter 5, this is a place where they are now confronted with the fear of the Lord. Do they actually believe God is who He says He is? And will they live for Him like He has called them to live? And in this moment, we see repentance in the people. Don't we? We see them turn from their ways that are actively hurting one another. They, we see them turn from their sin. We see people turn from that, and we see the hearts of the people turning to the Lord. This is the seed, I think, of what the real heart and the real theme, the real uh, message of Nehemiah is for us to grasp. <coughs> the real theme, the real message, the real heart of Nehemiah it's not about a building project, right? <clears throat> it's not about all these other things we like to use it for. It's not just leadership lessons, though there's good leadership lessons in the book of Nehemiah. It is God restoring his people and turning their hearts back to him. That's the story of Nehemiah. And this is where we see that seed because we see Nehemiah calling out the people for their sin, calling them out for their lack of the fear of the Lord, and we see this first glimpse, this first glimpse of repentance, of turning, of embracing their call as people of God. It's beautiful, church. It is. It's a beautiful theme. It's a beautiful story, what's happening in Nehemiah. But I've got to give you some spoilers that might disappoint you just a little bit. For all the beauty of this, the people are going to fail at the end of this story. If you read ahead, you know, it's there. I'm not, I can't stop you from skipping ahead. I hope you are reading ahead, frankly. But you get to the end in Nehemiah chapter 13, and you're going to see the wall gets built. You're going to see, and, and we'll see this coming up too in chapters 8 and 9, we're going to see the people really turn to the Lord and have this moment, this beautiful moment where, of, of rededication to God as God's people. Amazing moment. And then we're going to see in the course of about four, four chapters the people back to where they started. Sorry to spoil the story for you just a bit there. All the joy that we're going to see the people have in turn to the Lord and repentance with a desire to, to his law, by the end of the book, we are going to see that once again, the people fail to live it out. Is that depressing for anybody? I've got hope for you, though. 
That's why we need Christ. This is why we need Christ. If we don't turn now to Christ after what we've just preached and what we've just looked at in the book of Nehemiah, this is going to be a heavy burden for us to carry out the door and into the world today, right? Because I know how I live in my family is going to demonstrate uh, the God that it is that I say has saved me and has remade me in the image of his son and has set me on a path to eternal life as his child in faith. How I live with my family is going to demonstrate if that's true or not. And you know what? My family, uh, my wife is way too kind to me if you ever talk to her about, uh, about me. She is very, very kind. But trust me, I fail her. I fail her daily. The guys that I work with at Mel Trotter, love them. I, I try to give them Christ, but I fail them daily. And they don't always see Jesus coming out in me in the ways that they should. That's me being honest with you, church. And I hope that, I'm sure you all look at examples in your own life where that's the case. Because you know what? Because if we just try to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps now, and we say, yes, God's law is awesome, and it tells us to love our brother, and we're going to love one another, gosh darn it, we're going to fail. And we're going to be right back in the same spot that the people in Nehemiah's day were at. Where you have this amazing moment of rededication, like, yeah, let's go, Jesus. And a week later, you're going to be looking at that like, I can't believe I messed that up again. Why can't I shake that sin, Lord? Help me. Help me, God. I don't want to keep rededicating my life to you over and over and over again. God, what is the answer to this? The answer to this is Christ. And knowing that Christ is the one who has accomplished the work for us. So we're not working now, right, to love our brother, to just satisfy God's wrath. But no, we say, Jesus has paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. And now I'm here, I'm moldable, I'm, I'm, I'm shapeable. God, make me into your image. And yes, I may fail, but God, make me a man who comes back to repentance to the people I hurt. Make me a man who seeks to act justly, act fairly, act with kindness and mercy and humility in the image of Christ. This is why we need Christ. He's the one that we go to to repent and remember what he has done. And the law doesn't become an external thing simply for us to obey. It is something now, right, that is written on our hearts. It's the beautiful thing about the new covenant. Christ coming, ushering us in. The Holy Spirit, we're told, dwells inside of us. It's like, it's like God gives us all a conscience, but the Holy Spirit takes that conscience and he should be shaping that in our lives in order to kind of almost supercharge it, right? To where when, yes, we stumble and we sin, but now are we mortified by those things? Whereas before, I'd stumble and I'd sin and be like, ah, oh well. I think that's the mark of Christ in our lives. Not that we're never going to ever sin again, but what is it that when we sin is wrought in our hearts? Do we become people who are just being legalistic? chalking up every failure and then coming to these great moments of rededication to our life? Or is it this slow, steady pace of life with Christ as he sanctifies us by the power of the Holy Spirit? It's a process, church. We all want to walk in. We all want to hear the preacher preach. We all want to get prayed for and we want to walk out fixed, don't we? It's not how it works. It's not how it works. God purifies us by the power of the Holy Spirit day by day moment by moment, as we pursue him. This is why we need Christ. This is why we need Christ. It's the power of the gospel that restores us to God. 
And it puts His law in its proper place in our lives. Not as the master over us, but as the thing that lives in us, pushing us towards Him. And we need Christ for that, church. We need Christ for that. Living the pattern of our lives after Jesus, understanding how we should treat one another because of His commands, and through that, through that, right? Through that, glorifying God with how we live, not under His law, but in the light of His law and of His gospel. His gospel is that He's come and He's paid the price and He's set us free from our sin. We need Jesus, church. If we try to be like the people in Nehemiah's day and we just try to, again, pull up our bootstraps and say, yeah, we can fix it, we're going to have some moments where we're feeling really good about ourselves. But we need to, to, to stop and look day by day. How do we live for Jesus? Moment by moment. It's a slow burn. It's a slow burn. And that doesn't appeal to our personalities, right? But I can't fix you. You know, your husband, your wife, they can't fix you. Your neighbors, your friends, they can't fix you. Jesus is the one who comes in and does the fixing. And then from there, we live for him, church. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we lift your name right now up on high. Father, I pray that uh, this message today as we look to chapter 5 of, uh, of this story of your people in Jerusalem as they rebuild the wall would not be a heavy burden for us, Lord, but it would open our eyes, uh, number one, to our own inability to really, um, to really be the people that you've ca- called us to be on our own. And Father, I pray that that would drive us to your son Jesus, who gave himself as a sacrifice, as a ransom for us. And Father, with that, take this law, take your law, and write it on our hearts. Father, Nehemiah looked at the people and said, Ought you not walk in the fear of the Lord? Lord, let those words ring true in our lives and in our minds today. Let us remember, Lord, that you are the reason why we know what is good and what is evil, and that you are the one who has called us to walk in your ways. So God, I pray that we are encouraged in the gospel today. Lord, let us take on that that yoke of Christ, which is light, Lord, when Jesus says, Come to me, all who are heavy laden, for I give you rest. Father, Jesus truly gives us rest, and we praise you for that. Let us keep him in mind today as we think back through this story and we look to the story for instruction. In Jesus' name we pray, Lord. Amen.